The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Making New Strides in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, the latest guidelines, science, and strategies for early diagnosis and tailored treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TCX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to our symposium today entitled Making New Strides in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, the latest guidelines, science, and strategies for early diagnosis and tailored treatment. I'm Anjali Owens, and I'm joined today by my co-panelists, Dr. Neil Lakdawalla and Ms. Lisa Solberg. We'll start today with a segment from Ms. Lisa Solberg, who is CEO and founder of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. She'll be discussing gaps in providing high-quality care for HCM. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today to learn about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm going to be discussing HCM, some gaps in care, center of excellence care modeling, and health equity in HCM. The HCMA has been doing its work for 25 years. I founded the organization after a death in my family with my sister. She passed away um, from mismanagement from HCM at the age of 36. I've lost eight family members in total to HCM, and I have eight family members currently living with HCM. I had HCM, but no longer do, thanks to a heart transplant February 2nd, 2017. If you want any or more information about the HCMA, please visit us online. So I want to talk for a moment about prevalence, because this is an area of confusion. Um, we're evolving in our understanding of prevalence. For many years, we talked about the 1 in 500 number, which came from some really good research done by Marin and others on echo-based data and where they were able to see HCM on echocardiography. And in a number of different studies, this you know prevalence of 1 in 500 came through time and time again. But as time progressed, imaging improved, including the addition of cardiac uh, CMR. So with those better pictures and that better spatial resolution of the actual myocardium and the ability to use gadolinium to denote scarring, we were able to identify more people with clinical HCM by the amount of hypertrophy present. Additionally, genetic testing has offered the opportunity to see those who are at risk and make an earlier diagnosis in families with known mutations. So combined, we used to think HCM affected about 700,000 people in the United States with you know, 75,000 to 125,000 potentially being at high risk for cardiac arrest. But we now know that that number is different. It's closer to one in 250. And there's still some work to be done on total prevalence. But if it is one in 250 or even a little bit more, we're looking at over a million people in the United States with potentially diagnosable hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the percentage of those to be at high risk, not only for sudden cardiac arrest, but for heart failure. So first gap, we have to identify the undiagnosed. How do we find them? And when we're talking about the undiagnosed, they tend to be diagnosed with something other than HCM that's explaining their symptoms. In a survey of the HCMA, we had 1,600 participants answer the question. Prior to your diagnosis of HCM, what were you given a diagnosis of that explained your HCM-related symptoms? And what they answered was asthma, mitral valve prolapse, anxiety and panic attacks, depression, and 51% said they were diagnosed with an innocent murmur. If you start to connect these two, many patients were told things like innocent murmur and asthma, or panic attacks and a murmur. So I would look very closely into that family history 
and talk to these patients a little deeper because it may not be asthma, murmur, etc. It may be HCM. So let's help those patients get to a, a timely diagnosis. Part of the diagnostic journey varies based upon your ethnicity. And unfortunately, right now, 93% of the HCMA's database are Caucasians. And out of our Center of Excellence programming, nearly 90% of the patients in those programs are Caucasian. However, we know that sudden cardiac arrest occurs in young African-American athletes more commonly than any other demographic. So there's a disconnect here, and we all need to do better to find those with HCM who do not have a background that you might expect based on some of the literature that you may have read. So HCM can affect all people, all nationalities, all genders. It is a common disease, and we must do more to ensure that there is clear uh, consideration for all ethnicities in the diagnostic process of HCM. I do want to take a moment to talk about Center of Excellence modeling. In 2020, the AHAACC added to its guidelines that this method of care, a comprehensive primary uh, HCM program, should be the preferred model. The HCMA agrees, as we've had our programming for over 20 years. So we're very happy to see everybody come on board to this concept. What is the center of excellence? It's a multidisciplinary approach to HCM care, which includes imaging experts, interventional cardiologists, surgeons, uh, electrophysiologists, and a team to provide care for these patients, nurse practitioners, uh, maternal fetal health experts, geneticists, it is a team concept where patients can be ensured to get the best quality care possible based on their unique ab abnormalities, their anatomy, and their prognosis based upon their phenotype. Um, so we want to also mention that there is a critical role for primary cardiologists at home to work in concert with Center of Excellence Modeling. Centers of Excellence uh, exist right now through the HCMA Center of Excellence Program and we have 43 programs with 16 under review, which we will hope to bring to the world in the next 24 months. So if you're interested in learning more about Center of Excellence Modeling, please visit us at 4HCM.org. Thanks, Lisa. Next, we'll discuss making a diagnosis of HCM, followed by guideline-based recommendations for treatment. As we move through the educational program today, we'll base our discussion on a few case examples that are typical of patients referred by a primary care physician to see a cardiologist. The first is a 19-year-old asymptomatic college student named Rory, who presents with a murmur identified during a routine sports physical. The second is Mary Ann, a 30-year-old property manager, who presents with chest discomfort and shortness of breath with climbing stairs. And finally, Ernesto, a 64-year-old accountant who's referred urgently for atrial fibrillation found on an in-office EKG. A diagnosis of HCM in adults is made when end-diastolic left ventricular wall thickness is found to be greater than 1.5 centimeters in the absence of another cause of hypertrophy, or 1.3 centimeters in a patient with a known predis uh, genetic predisposition to HCM. Left ventricular hypertrophy is usually diagnosed by echocardiogram or MRI and can affect any part of the left ventricle. In HCM, septal predominant hypertrophy is the most common pattern. Septal hypertrophy can result in systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve and left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which is pictured in the middle graphic. 
HCM can also present with other anatomic variants, including mid-cavity hypertrophy and apical hypertrophy. Here are some real echo and MRI images of patients with HCM. You can see the variability in left ventricular morphology that occurs in this disease, with some patients having systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve and outflow tract obstruction, and others having no obstruction at all. The MRI on the bottom shows an apical aneurysm and mid-cavitary obstruction. Here's a series of transthoracic echocardiograms performed in patients with various phenotypes of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you can see the anatomic variability in left ventricular morphology. Starting with the top two images, the top left and the top middle, a patient with septal predominant hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. And what you can see there is that the mitral valve leaflets coapt, and then the anterior leaflet tips upward and touches the septum during systole, which contributes to significant left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. In the upper right, you see a patient with um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that, again, is septal predominant. But here, you are seeing further down in the ventricle at the level of the mitral valve and beyond uh, what appears to be obstruction in the cavity of the left ventricle. On the bottom left is a patient with mild hypertrophy who is likely to be genotype positive, but with a very mild phenotype with a maximal septal wall thickness that's not more than 1.3 or so centimeters, and no evidence of systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. Pictured in the bottom middle is a patient, again, with septal predominant hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That septum is markedly hypertrophied, but is not causing SAM or outflow tract obstruction. And finally, in the bottom right, pictured with uh, a contrast agent, is a massively hypertrophied septum that ballpark is in the nearly four centimeter range. Um, and again, without evidence of resting outflow tract obstruction, but a severely hypertrophied septum. And this just shows the variability and the heterogeneity of this disease. In many cases, HCM is a disease of the cardiac sarcomere. On pathology, patients with HCM are found to have myocyte disarray and interstitial and replacement fibrosis. Approximately 30 to 60% of patients with a clinical diagnosis of HCM have a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant found on genetic testing. In a large international registry of HCM patients, those with an identified pathogenic sarcomere variant had worse outcomes than those patients who did not have a pathogenic variant. We know from very large families that there is significant variability in disease expression, whereby one member of a family can have a very severe phenotype, while another has a mild phenotype, even with the exact same genetic variant, leading us to believe that there are environmental and genetic modifiers that are not yet well understood. Of patients diagnosed with HCM, approximately two-thirds are found to have evidence of obstruction at rest or with Valsalva or exercise, while the remaining approximately one-third are classified as non-obstructive. 
In addition to an abnormal echocardiogram showing left ventricular hypertrophy or outflow tract obstruction, there are other clinical features that should raise your suspicion of a diagnosis of HCM. A family history of unexpected or sudden death at a young age, a history of heart failure or stroke, or known cardiomyopathy in the family may suggest a family history of HCM. If an autopsy is available, ask to review the report, which may provide important information. A personal history of unexplained syncope or stroke are also suspicious. On exam, a systolic ejection murmur that augments with Valsalva is classic for left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and may be present on some days and absent on others depending on the loading conditions. An EKG demonstrating left ventricular hypertrophy with repolarization abnormality or Q waves should also prompt further evaluation with cardiac imaging to look for an underlying cardiomyopathy. Finally, many patients with HCM are asymptomatic, so a normal history and exam do not rule out HCM. As Lisa Salberg highlighted in her introduction, we frequently see patients who have been given a diagnosis of some other condition prior to receiving the correct diagnosis of HCM. The reason for this high rate of misdiagnosis or incomplete diagnosis is likely due to the heterogeneous symptom presentation and overlap in symptoms with other cardiac and non-cardiac diagnoses. For example, patients who present at a younger age may be told that they have exercise-induced asthma or an innocent heart murmur, while women of any age are more commonly misdiagnosed with anxiety or panic attacks. A misdiagnosis of mitral valve prolapse is also fairly common. Obtaining cardiac imaging to review mitral valve anatomy and function is a critical step in achieving the correct diagnosis. Finally, syncope, particularly occurring during or just after exertion, is a worrisome event and should be thoroughly evaluated prior to determining the etiology. Evaluation of a patient with possible HCM should therefore include a three-generation focused family history, a comprehensive physical exam, particularly with regard to presence of a systolic ejection murmur, and a 12-lead EKG to look for signs of left ventricular hypertrophy or repolarization abnormalities. If suspicion for HCM is present, cardiac imaging is critical to making a diagnosis, starting usually with a resting transthoracic echocardiogram. If left ventricular hypertrophy is present, Performing a valsalva maneuver to look for obstruction and stress echocardiogram if there is no resting or valsalva gradient is recommended. If echocardiogram is inconclusive or further details of anatomy, wall thickness, or myocardial tissue characterization is needed, cardiac MRI should be obtained. Finally, in patients with left ventricular hypertrophy consistent with HCM, genetic counseling and testing should be offered. In fact, genetic testing can be useful in differentiating sarcomeric HCM from several conditions that may look like HCM on cardiac imaging. Listed here are several genetic forms of cardiomyopathy that also present with left ventricular hypertrophy. In some cases, there are extracardiac features that may tip you off that you are dealing with something other than HCM. For example, in Febray disease, patients can have neuropathic pain or renal involvement. In other mimicking conditions, the EKG or tissue characterization on MRI can help to make the correct diagnosis. 
For example, in amyloid, you may see low voltage on EKG despite left ventricular hypertrophy on echo, indicative of an infiltrative disease. Patients with Dannon disease and PRKAG2-related cardiomyopathy may present with a short PR interval or pre-excitation on EKG. It's important to make the correct diagnosis of these conditions as a few have targeted therapies that can change prognosis. Next, we'll hear a patient's perspective on an HCM diagnosis. Well, I'm Carol, born and bred in Tennessee and currently live here. I was diagnosed in 2015. I started with a new doctor and it all started with a question, did you know you had a heart murmur? And I'm not worried about it, she says, but let's get you to a cardiologist to check it out. And I had, over the course of time, had a lot of the symptoms, specifically the fatigue, extreme shortness of breath, doing very simple tasks. And I did not initially go to a center of excellence, but I did finally get to one. And fortunately, I also found the association where I have gotten some great guidance. I got an ICD within a couple of months of being um, diagnosed. It was probably a little premature, but as it's turned out, I would have needed one anyways. A um, couple years later, I had a myectomy, once again, fortunate to be able to go to Cleveland. And at the end of the day, um, I, I live a really normal life. I'm on metoprolol and a few things I can't do, but as a general rule, I consider myself very fortunate. It's always great when my cardiologist said, see you next year. Our next segment will be Dr. Lakdawalla discussing what to do after the results are in. Thanks, Dr. Owens. So what do we do next? You're a cardiologist and a patient has been referred to you for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Well, first, it's worth reemphasizing points made earlier regarding the atypical nature with which a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may present to a cardiologist. Sometimes it's a classic manifestation such as exertional dyspnea, syncope, angina, palpitations, and characteristically, these symptoms vary quite dramatically on a day-to-day -day basis as loading conditions change on a day-to-day -day basis. And as noted earlier, some patients are asymptomatic and identified by virtue of abnormal physical examination findings or ECG abnormalities. But the ECG alone is insufficient to make a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when this diagnosis is suspected. Here are findings from the John, Johns Hopkins HCM clinic cohort where they outlined the ECG abnormalities amongst a group of patients with confirmed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Importantly, 18% of these patients had a normal ECG, and when abnormalities were present, they were often nonspecific, such as repolarization abnormalities present in 61%, whereas the classic ECG changes diagnostic of left ventricular hypertrophy, such as the Cornell or the Sokolow-Lyon criteria, were present in only about one quarter of patients with HCM. So we'll start with Rory. Um, as mentioned earlier, Rory was asymptomatic and presented with a murmur that was identified during a pre-participation physical examination. Rory's electrocardiogram is effectively normal. He has normal QRS amplitude and no, uh, no repolarization abnormalities. And this contrasts with Mary, Mary Ann, who's a property manager and presenting with exertional symptoms of angina and dyspnea. Marianne has 
repolarization abnormalities most evident in the inferolateral leads with SD segment depressions and T wave inversions, but also um, doesn't have as obvious of a presentation of increased QRS amplitude beyond the Cornell criteria met in AVL and V3. And this is in contrast with Ernesto's ECG. Ernesto was referred to us because AF was identified on an in-office electrocardiogram. However, when he was seen in our office, in a cardiology office, what stood out was decreased limb lead QRS amplitude and sinus rhythm at the time of his first visit with us. So summarizing, Rory had a normal electrocardiogram in the context of an asymptomatically identified murmur, whereas Marianne has mild first-degree AV block and inverted T waves in um, her precordial leads. What does this mean? And then last, Ernesto, who has decreased curious amplitude in a history of atrial fibrillation, but sinus rhythm at the time of his evaluation with us. So we take the next appropriate step and get cardiac imaging. In Rory's case, perhaps due to his muscular build and a cardio border definition is limited. He has a murmur and we haven't fully assessed the mechanism of that murmur. We went on and identified um, non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy using cardiac MRI. The arrows indicate uh, the endocardial border definition that were really obscured on uh, transthoracic echocardiographic images and show pathologic hypertrophy in his mid to distal left ventricle. In Marianne's case, it was evident from her initial transthoracic parasternal long axis images that she had septal hypertrophy, which measured uh, 17 millimeters in the parasternal long axis view. Ernesto's imaging showed left ventricular hypertrophy, at least increased wall thickness, but when in contrast to the diminished QRS amplitude on his limb leads, stood out as potentially su suggestive of amyloid heart disease. So summarizing the imaging results, Rory has apical thickening on echocardiogram that was suspected but clearly delineated on cardiac MRI and preserved systolic function without outflow tract obstruction evident at rest or with Valsalva provocation. Marianne has um, a classic asymmetric septal hypertrophy, and although we did not show these images, she had systolic interior motion of the mitral leaflet on stress echo imaging with an outflow tract gradient that was severe in excess of 50 millimeters mercury. She too had preserved systolic function. In Ernesto's case, uh, due to a high suspicion of cardiac amyloidosis, this diagnosis was later confirmed through cardiac imaging and serologic testing, and we'll not be discussing his case further today. So why do these patients have left ventricular hypertrophy? And so one of the key components of an initial HCM evaluation is a careful family history. In Rory's case, what stood out was a family history of early death and a maternal uncle. Uh, this early death was attributed to myocardial infarction, but autopsy and um, definitive information were not available. Um, his Mother died of a presumed MI at age 37, and in your careful sleuthing, she did not have risk factors for premature atherosclerotic heart disease, suggestive of underlying familial HCM. And his brother was recently diagnosed with athlete's heart, um, also at a similar age. Mary, in Marianne's case, there's a strong family history of atrial fibrillation present in her father, who had a stroke at uh, the young age of 55. And 
Um, her brother was recently evaluated for a fainting spell, a syncopal episode that occurred while working on a um, construction site during the summertime that had been attributed to dehydration. And in each one of these individuals' cases, we can make a fairly compelling case that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may have underlied their clinical presentation. So in Marianne's case, um, she had presented with fairly prominent symptoms. And the question that uh, was raised was how much of, of, was her experience typical for that of other women with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, we've learned that an HCM diagnosis and a recognition of heart failure symptoms in women are quite delayed relative to men in excess of five years. Some of this um, may uh, be related to diminished or decreased penetrance of HCM causing sarcomere variants in women compared to men leading to a later age at clinical presentation. Um, however, it may also be that providers misinterpret or underplay presenting symptoms of angina, atypical chest pain, dyspnea, fatigue, all of these which could be um, uh, attributed to other causes and not fully sussed out to be related to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And last, women may be less likely to seek out medical care for themselves based on their own learned experience or um, related to their primary role often as caretakers within a family. So in spite of a delayed diagnosis and um, perhaps um, a misinterpretation of presenting symptoms, it's important to recognize that the clinical course of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in women may be more severe than in men. These are data from the International Share Registry of of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy programs that showed women were more likely to require septal reduction therapy, had a substantially higher risk of progressing to class three or four heart failure symptoms, and were at increased risk of mortality compared to men. So we made a clinical diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in our patients with cardiac imaging. We've taken a careful family history suggestive of familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and this segues nicely into the role of genetic testing in the current and in the future management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Large cohort studies of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have undergone genetic testing are helping to um, define the standard of care, and so by performing genetic testing, we're adding to that knowledge base. Um, some of this uh, is important at the individual patient basis as we learn uh, more about the genetic diversity underlying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and unique sarcomeric variants are identified. By adding to this data set, we can help clarify the pathogenicity of an individual variant. Um, as we conduct more genetic testing in clinical practice, we add to the, um, the international uh, databases of, of um, sarcomere variants and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which can actually lead to resolution of a variant of unknown significance in your individual patient. Historically, it had been difficult to obtain genetic testing for patients. This is no longer the case. The cost has come down. There are even some free genetic testing and counseling resources available. So why do we can perform genetic testing? I've given some arguments for why this should be done um, at a population level to inform our knowledge base, but it has real impact at the individual patient level. For one, we're able to define the genetic etiology of disease. Um, Dr. Owens had presented several phenocopies or mimics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can be, that can be clearly identified through genetic testing. 
Um, most importantly, genetic testing can help guide family management through definitively identifying at-risk relatives. This is so-called cascade screening, whereby a pathogenic variant can be identified in the proband or index case, and then at-risk relatives can undergo genetic testing to determine whether they carry or do not carry the same variant. Those who do not carry it can be released from longitudinal follow-up, whereas those who do carry it should be followed longitudinally, even if their individual, if their initial evaluations are normal, owing to the delayed age-dependent penetrance of the phenotype. And as we do genetic testing more frequently, this will help um, develop the knowledge base to change clinical paradigms. Um, perhaps by identifying patient populations who should be treated earlier um, with pharmacotherapy to prevent disease progression. So returning to Rory and Marianne, both diagnosed with primary hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In Rory's case, a, uh, a mutation in TNNI3, the gene which encodes um, troponin I, um, was identified. And in Marianne's case, uh, a pathogenic variant in MYH7, which encodes beta-myosin heavy chain was identified. It's worth noting that the majority of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mutations occur in one of the two heavy chain encoding genes, MYH7 and MYBPC3. So in both Rory and Marianne's case, we've diagnosed them with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Rory has non-obstructive familial HCM and Marianne has obstructive familial HCM. So now we'll hear some patient perspectives on genetic testing for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So um, I live in Kansas City. I'm originally from Lebanon. Um, HCM has taken a toll on our family because um, in 2008, I lost my sister, sudden cardiac arrest. In 2012, I lost my mother heart failure. We never connected the dots because they both live in Lebanon. They don't have the technology and the advancements here. But uh, it's not until my daughter, who was 10 years old, passed out at school that every, sometime, something in my head triggered and I insisted on full testing for her and then genetic testing. And sure enough, it turned out we all have HCM in the family. That's what killed my sister. That's what killed my mom. Um, I have a I have the gen, gene uh, genetic positive also tested genetic positive for it. My two twin daughters have the genetic testing, and it showed that positive. Um, one of them um, she had it bad, so she got uh, fitted with an ICD at ten right after she passed out at school, and then she's been on meds uh, for seven years. But unfortunately, she's one of the cases that is um, her arrhythmia is malignant. She's been saved by her ICD multiple times, but um, the time has come right now that we need to find different, different cure uh, for her. And it seems that transplant is the only way out. And that's what's going to give her a life. I'll turn it back over to my colleague, Dr. Owens, who's going to discuss medical therapy for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Thank you, Dr. Lakdawala. In this next section, we'll discuss current guideline-based treatment options and also novel therapies that are in development. With such a heterogeneous disease, it's not usually a one-size-fits-all approach. Rather, we look at each individual's unique symptoms, heart structure, and function to tailor a treatment plan. Importantly, routine follow-up and objective reassessment is critical as treatment goals uh, often change over time. 
Recall that HCM is a disease affecting the cardiac sarcomere, or the motor of the cardiomyocyte. Uh, the force of contraction and relaxation are governed largely by the interaction between two proteins, myosin and actin, which are depicted here. If contraction and relaxation, which are both active energy-requiring processes, are dysregulated and inefficient, we can see effects in the heart, such as hypercontractility and diastolic dysfunction. Ideally, pharmacologic treatment of HCM aims to reduce hypercontractility and improve diastolic function. The current treatment landscape includes medications, devices, and procedures that are selected based on the patient's manifestation of disease. <clears throat> there is a subset of patients who have HCM who live a normal lifespan with few, if any, symptoms. And for those patients, no treatment may be required. The main complications that we look for and try to prevent in patients with HCM are sudden death due to ventricular arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation and stroke, severe obstructive disease that leads to symptoms of advanced heart failure, and advanced heart failure in the non-obstructive patient. We have treatment strategies for all of these potential outcomes, including the implantation of an ICD for primary or secondary prevention of sudden death, medications and invasive septal reduction therapy for heart failure symptoms due to left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and medications and if all else fails, heart transplantation for refractory advanced heart failure. We use anticoagulation, antiarrhythmics, cardioversion and ablation to treat AFib and to prevent stroke. This slide outlines the recent AHA-ACC guideline-based treatments for patients with symptomatic HCM. Starting on the left, for patients who have non-obstructive HCM and a left ventricular ejection fraction greater than or equal to 50%, the first-line therapy for symptoms includes beta blockers, and centrally acting calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem or verapamil. If symptoms are severe despite AV nodal blocking therapy and include an element of congestion, diuretics can be added, and in highly selected patients, an apical myectomy or ventricular reconstruction surgery can be considered at a high-volume surgical center. This is for a very small group of patients. In other highly selected patients who have no other options, heart transplant can also be successful. Moving to the middle column, for patients who have non-obstructive HCM, but an LVEF that has dropped below 50%, which we consider to be a significantly reduced ejection fraction given the pathophysiology of HCM. In those patients, we transition to neurohormonal blockade that's used in patients with a reduced ejection fraction, including beta blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers, or angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, aldosterone antagonists. In addition, we usually discontinue negative inotropic agents such as calcium channel blockers and disopyramide once systolic function is impaired. And importantly, we consider the need for a prophylactic ICD once the EF is less than 50% in patients with HCM. For patients who have non-obstructive HCM and LVEF less than 50% and who do not respond to medical therapy, some patients may be a candidate for CRT 
or again, heart transplant if needed. And finally, the last column addresses treatment strategies for patients who have obstructive HCM. First-line therapies include beta blockers and centrally acting calcium channel blockers and avoiding agents that can decrease preload or afterload, including avoidance of high-dose diuretics or vasodilating medications. If patients remain symptomatic with severe obstruction, second-line therapy includes consideration of disopyramide or septal myectomy or alcohol ablation, which should be performed at an experience center. Let's circle back to our cases. Rory, who has non-obstructive HCM and is asymptomatic. Based on the 2020 guidelines, there's no strong indication for using a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker in an asymptomatic patient with non-obstructive HCM. However, with emerging data from the recently published VANISH randomized control trial, and if the patient had prehypertension or hypertension, it would be reasonable to consider the angiotensin receptor blocker Valsartan in a shared decision-making approach. Dr. Lochtewella will walk us through the results of the VANISH trial in the next section. For Marianne, who has symptomatic obstructive HCM, initiating first-line guideline-based therapy with a beta blocker titrated up to improvement of symptoms is recommended. In addition to our list of medications recommended by the 2020 guidelines, which are shown on the left, and the possibility of repurposing existing agents such as Valsartan based on new randomized controlled trial data, there has been significant advancement in developing novel targeted therapy for HCM with a brand new class of agents called myosin inhibitors. And also on the horizon is gene therapy, which is currently in preclinical trials. As an introduction to the novel class of agents called myosin inhibitors, we'll start with a short video. In HCM, there are too many connections or cross bridges between actin and myosin proteins, which increases the energy used by the heart and makes it harder for the muscle to relax. There are currently two small molecule myosin inhibitors being evaluated in clinical trials for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The first in class agent is Mavicamptin, which has been designated as a breakthrough therapy by the FDA. A second in class agent called Afficamptin is in phase two clinical trials with preliminary results presented um, at the Heart Failure Society meeting in September of 2021. Dr. Lochtewella will guide us through the exciting clinical trial data from Mavicamptin and Afficamptin, but first we'll have a brief video explaining the mechanism of action of myosin inhibitors. Myosin inhibitors target the underlying mechanism of HCM by inhibiting and therefore reducing the number of actin-myosin cross bridges. The recently published Explore HCM study was a phase three trial of Mavicamptin in patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and predominantly NYHA functional class 2 and 3 effort intolerance. Patients enrolled in this study underwent a five-week screening phase, were comprehensively evaluated at baseline, and then in a double-blind placebo-controlled fashion, received either placebo or mavicamptin in escalating doses for 30 weeks. At the end of treatment, patients 
came off investigational therapy and had an end-of-study uh, clinical and echocardiographic assessment. Following this, all patients enrolled in Explore were availed the opportunity to, to enroll in MAVA-LTE, a long-term extension study of open-label MAVA-Campton. Presented here are the baseline characteristics of patients enrolled in the Explore HCM trial. On average, patients were in their sixth decade of life. There was an a fairly representative um, female sex predominance uh, in this cohort. There actually there was there is a male sex predominance in this cohort compatible with what we see in clinical practice. Background hypertrophic cardiomyopathy therapy was also in keeping with consensus guideline recommendations with beta blockers or L-type calcium channel blockers utilized in the majority. Most patients were NOHA functional class two with um, a little over 25% with class three effort intolerance. There is a modest number of patients with prior atrial fibrillation, and as seen from their cardiopulmonary exercise testing, their peak VO2 was low, representative of what we would see in an HCM population. With increased NTBNP, here's their geometric mean approaching 1,000. Genetic testing had been performed in the majority of these patients with approximately 25 to 30% harboring a sarcomeric variant that was pathogenic or likely pathogenic. The primary endpoint in um, Explorer HCM was either a 1.5 milliliter per kilogram minute increase in peak VO2 with a, a greater than or equal to one NYHA functional class improvement or a greater than 3.0 milliliter per kilogram per minute increase in peak VO2 without worsening NYHA functional class. The secondary endpoint was both, so patients who had a very impressive improvement in peak VO2 and an improvement in NYHA functional class. So um, Mavacampton hit both primary and second, secondary endpoints with a high degree of statistical significance. 37% of patients receiving Mavacampton versus 17% of those receiving placebo, uh, representing a difference of 19% experienced um, a 1.5 milliliter per kilogram minute increase in peak VO2 um, and NYHA functional class improvement or greater than 3.0 milliliters per kilogram per minute improvement in peak VO2. Patients who hit both, they had a, a, a very dramatic improvement in peak VO2 and an improvement in NYHA functional class, um, represented 20% of the Mavacampton-treated group and only 7% uh, percent of the placebo-treated group. Both, again, were highly statistically significant differences. LVEF was an important safety endpoint in the Explore HCM trial. Mycin inhibitors decreased the force of contraction, and an overdose would essentially be a marked reduction in LVEF. There was a modest reduction in LVEF in the Mavacampton-treated group, which remained well within the normal range uh, for the vast majority of patients. The improvement in symptoms uh, was associated with or under, underlined by a dramatic improvement in outflow tract obstruction. Presented on the left figure is the change in LVOT gradient in the Mavacampton-treated patients represented by the blue line compared to those who received placebo. And rest resting gradients were dramatically lower in those treated with Mavacampton. Likewise, exercise echo was performed at baseline and at week 30, the end of treatment visit, 
and there was a significant improvement in post-exercise LVOT gradient in the Mavacamptin-treated group relative to those who received placebo. 74% of patients treated with Mavacamptin um, fell below the threshold for septal reduction therapy, meaning that they had improved so much with an improvement in alpha-tract gradients that um, septal reduction therapy was no longer indicated. And 57% of those had complete relief of obstruction, defined as a gradient less than 30. A key secondary endpoint was the change in NTBNP in patients treated with Mavacamptin. Compared to placebo, there was a marked reduction in NTBNP that was sustained throughout the on-treatment phase. As expected, patients who had an improvement in exercise capacity and um, reductions in gradient and NTBNP experienced an improvement in NYHA functional class. Presented here are the NYHA functional class at baseline week 14 and week 30. On the left of this figure are the Mavacamptin-treated patients. On the right are the placebo-treated patients. The blue segment of the lines represent NYHA functional class 2, purple class 1, and um, green class 3. We can see by week 30, there's a substantial number of patients who are NYHA functional class 1 in the Mavacamptin-treated group compared to those who received placebo. Quality of life was assessed with the KCCQ in the Explore HCM trial, and there was a uh, sustained and significant improvement in quality of life in the Mavacamptin-treated patients that is comparable to some of our most effective therapies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. What remains to be determined is the long-term safety of treatment with Mavacamptin, something we expect to come from the long-term extension study, and determination of the optimal dosing protocols. Redwood HCM is a phase two study of Afficampton that was recently published at this year's Heart Failure Society of America scientific session. In this small placebo-controlled study of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and outflow tract obstruction, um, treatment with Afficampton is compared to placebo, and in both um, group's standard of care was background therapy. There were two cohorts that were presented um, as part of the presentation this year. Cohort one included a uh, dose escalation starting from 5 milligrams up to 15, and then in cohort two, starting at 10 milligrams up to 30 milligrams per day. Um, patients were followed up to week uh, nine, and then end-of-study visits were uh, conducted. Much like in the Explore HCM uh, cohort. In Redwood HCM, patients were in their 50s. There was a, um, in this case, a um, female sex predominance with women accounting for more than half of the patients in both arms. Um, the patients skewed towards NYHA functional class 2 effort intolerance with severe septal hypertrophy and preserved systolic function at baseline with um, helpful tract obstruction present um, uh, both at rest and with Valsalva provocation. Like seen in the Explore HCM study, treatment with the myosin inhibitor malafacamptin reduced LVOT gradient um, throughout the treatment phase. The placebo-treated patients are represented with the orange line. Those treated with afacamptin in cohort 1 or the lower dose escalation or cohort 2, the higher dose escalation, are shown in dark and light blue, respectively. 
And both with rest-obtained images and Valsalva images, there was a significant reduction in alpha-attract gradient um, with most patients following below 30 millimeters mercury or essentially um, experiencing non-obstructive physiology. After washout, obstruction recurred. Also uh, seen in the Explore HCM study, patients treated with afacamptin experienced a decrease in their NTBNP in both the low and higher dose cohort 2 um, groups and an improvement in, in heart failure symptoms as judged by the NOHA functional classification scheme. With myosin inhibitors, a reduction in ejection fraction is to be expected, uh, but the magnitude of reduction was modest, um, and uh, in general, the drug was well-tolerated. It's worth noting that while these data have been presented at a national meeting, um, the final um, study has not yet been peer-reviewed and published. So shifting to um, a patient like Rory, someone who has non-obstructive HCM, and essentially is asymptomatic. And this raises the question of whether pharmacotherapy can prevent disease progression. This provocative question was posed uh, by Dr. Carolyn Ho in the VANISH trial. In this study, 150 patients who had early hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they were minimally symptomatic, young, and had no outflow tract obstruction, underwent comprehensive baseline evaluations, and then were randomly treated with um, Valsartan titrated up to 320 milligrams a day in adults and 160 milligrams a day for children, um, 80 milligrams for small children, um, and uh, were followed for uh, 24 months utilizing cardiac imaging and cardiac biomarkers for response to therapy. Because these patients generally aren't expected to experience hard out outcomes throughout a 24-month period of follow-up, and because they are asymptomatic, one of the novel features of this study that was pioneered uh, was the development of a composite outcome, which was um, comprised of a z-score change across multiple domains representing myocardial injury, hemodynamic stress, cardiac morphology, and cardiac function. <clears throat> uh, presented here are the baseline characteristics of patients in the VANISH trial. Uh, as expected, this is a young cohort with patients in the early 20s on average. Um, women represented approximately 40% in both of the Valsartan and placebo-treated group. Um, there was minimal background therapy because these were patients who were uh, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic at baseline. Unlike Explore and um, um, the Redwood study, patients had robust functional capacity with a peak VO2, which was in excess of 30, millimeters, 30 uh, milliliters per kilogram per minute. Perhaps not that great when correcting for their age, however. And um, uh, NTBNP, which doesn't catch our attention, at only 124 in the Valsartan-treated group and 86 in the placebo-treated group at baseline. Genetic testing was performed in all of these patients, and all patients had a pathogenic sarcomere variant. This was one of the key inclusion criteria. <clears throat> Presented here um, are the, um, uh, is a forest plot of how patients responded vis-a-vis a composite Z-score outcome. And so um, patients who responded favorably with favorable changes in cardiac morphology, function, or um, injury, or hemodynamic stress are presented to, to the right of the line of unity. And overall, um, there was a benefit uh, with Valsartan treatment. This benefit was present in both women and men, it was present in both children and adults. 
and was perhaps most prominent in patients who had not yet developed extreme degrees of hypertrophy vis-a-vis a z-score of maximal wall thickness greater than 7.3. Um, there was um, a, a, a signal of benefit in both patients with C-protein and MYH7 uh, variants, uh, perhaps with a trend towards a greater benefit in MYH7 variant carriers. And now I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Owens. Thank you, Dr. Lakdawala. There's a notable lack of qualitative research in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This publication that was recently done highlighted both the negative and positive feelings that patients who are diagnosed with and living with HCM have. In addition to hearing our patients' perspective on their care, it's also important to increase the diversity of patients who have access to care and to group forums where different perspectives can be shared. We'll now hear a patient perspective on HCM care. HCM is a whole life reality. It's not something that you can say, you know, like they might say, hey, your cholesterol is looking fine, go on your merry way. This is a much bigger issue and it affects every part of my life. So, you know, there were many times that I had to stand by and watch my kids play rather than being able to engage them vigorously because I just can't do that. Uh, There are many times when I find myself fatigued and tired because of all the meds I'm on. And I have to kind of step back and and let the activities of family life go on and say, you guys, I need a break and I need to step back from that. And so it's important for uh, people to realize the entirety of life and all that it takes up and how you have to manage your meds and take them at the proper times and and, and do all this, it, it, it affects more than just saying you got a heart condition. And so to have people advocate for us who understand that reality and can then understand us when we come with complaints or we come with, uh, hey, I, this is going on. What am I supposed to do about this? Uh, and have them be able to understand that and realize that it's, it's a bigger thing than just one issue. The concept of shared decision-making is certainly not new, and most of us do this with our patients every day, but it's notable that the 2020 guidelines highlighted the use of shared decision-making, particularly for any Class 2B recommendation. This includes decisions regarding genetic evaluation, exercise intensity, and therapy choices. Our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy often have a number of healthcare professionals, including a primary care doctor, a local cardiologist, and sometimes more than one specialist cardiologist. It's of the utmost importance that we develop a multidisciplinary, collaborative approach to caring for patients with HCM, such that the patients are receiving optimal care without unnecessarily duplicating testing, and that communication between healthcare professionals is prioritized. In many ways, HCM centers can act as a central coordinating center for a patient's care and certainly as a preferred destination for complex procedures or second opinion on management. In conclusion, we have a few key takeaway messages today. The first is that cardiac imaging, starting with echocardiogram, is central to making a diagnosis of HCM. HCM, in many cases, is caused by a pathogenic variant in a sarcomere gene. Our current treatment approaches focus on symptom relief, as well as prevention of sudden death and stroke. 
And finally, emerging therapies aim to target the underlying pathophysiology of HCM and are well on their way to development. Next, we'll take a few questions that were submitted in advance of the symposia. The first is, how do you think myosin inhibitors will fit into the treatment algorithm for patients with obstructive HCM? Dr. Lakdawala, what are your thoughts on this? It's a great question. I think that um, we'll probably turn to nodal blockers as first-line therapy and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We're comfortable with the drugs. They're ubiquitous. They're inexpensive and generally well-tolerated, if not completely effective. And so uh, I think one place that we could envision myosin inhibitors taking would be second-line therapy in patients with obstructive HCM who remain symptomatic after initiation with either a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker and titration up, or in patients who have limiting side effects with those, medical, with those medications. It's, it's provocative that uh, mavocamptin might take the place of disoperamide as that second-line agent, but given the um, shortage of disoperamide and the many side effects associated with disoperamide in some patients, that could be a place for these therapies. So Dr. Owens, in patients referred to you for septal reduction therapy, and whom might you consider a myosin inhibitor as an alternative to either alcohol septal ablation or a septal myectomy? It's a great question, Dr. Lakdawala, and obviously one that we're still in the process of investigating through the Valor HCM clinical trial. Um, we've had most patients prefer to try medication prior to undergoing an invasive therapy. And I think it's yet to be seen um, the durability of response to myosin inhibitors and obviously the long-term outcomes. It will be a therapy that may be lifelong, um, and that's another consideration in terms of whether patients will be willing to take a lifelong therapy. Yeah, I agree. I think it's nice to have choices for our patients, and we can certainly envision patients who want to be done with it and have septal reduction therapy appreciate the long safety track record and the good outcomes generally experienced by patients post-SRT, but a lot of patients don't want to undergo an invasive procedure, and I, I share your sentiment. Thank you, everyone, for attending our symposia today, and thank you to Dr. Lakdawala for joining me as a panelist. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity has been developed in partnership with the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TCX860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.